the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten. There are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself. For the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 5. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. For those of you who've been following along so far, you'll know that last week I came into possession of a storage unit. For those of you who haven't been following along, well, now you know also. There's so much here. So many documents, recordings, letters, novels. Many of them appear to be esoterica and random correspondence. Letters from folks I've never heard of with recipients I can't make out. Unlabeled cassette tapes, CDs, mini-discs, and thumb drives. I even found a wax cylinder that clearly has some kind of audio etched onto it. How I'll be able to listen to that, I have no idea. Then there are journals. So many journals. So much history. So many memories recorded and saved for posterity. Far, far too many to even perform or share. There's a shelf here, for instance, with ten journals from a woman named Mary Beth Carter. I flicked through a few. She seems to have kept a journal from the age of nine to the age of 84. Ten volumes. How do I sort through that? And yet, with everything I touch in here, everything I feel, I can sense stories that want to be told, that need to be told. At night, I dream of their importance, the contents of this entire storage facility. Vague, ambiguous dreams devoid of imagery or narrative, but dreams that tell me every story in this place needs telling, sharing, hearing. But how can I? There's so much here. Far too much for us to ever perform on the show. And what's more, there's something else strange. Some of the books in this place, I recognize them. Not in a mysterious way. Rather, they are known books with familiar titles and popular authors. There's a whole bookshelf of them. Some are niche, some are extremely famous. Most of them are horror, but some are not. And yeah, this might not seem bizarre. The storage unit is a collection of books in general, after all. And yet from these published books, these novels you can buy in any bookstore, many of which we certainly don't have the rights to perform on the show, I can sense the same kind of urgent energy. The same screaming voice in my head telling me that these stories are important too. But I can't perform these. I can't take a book of short stories published by a living author within the last 20 years. Authors who we've never worked with, who many of you will have heard of and read, and just perform their works on the show. So why are these books screaming at me just as much as the letters and the tapes and the journals? Something connects them all. 
Something connects every piece of writing in this specific storage unit. The known published books, most of them have a sticker over the barcode suggesting they were for sale at a certain bookstore. I haven't yet had a chance to look into this bookstore. I, I don't want to publicize its name yet, in case it still exists, and fans swarm the place looking for clues. I have no idea what connection this bookstore might have to the contents of this storage unit, if anything. I don't want some poor, unsuspecting bookstore owner suddenly overwhelmed with no-sleep podcast listeners trying to solve a mystery that said owner may be entirely oblivious to. As much as the image of this happening is somewhat appealingly mischievous and amusing. Hmm, maybe if it weren't for the pandemic. But beyond that, and perhaps most importantly, I have no idea what our benefactor, who tasked me with doing something with all of this, ultimately wants. I have heard nothing from them since I received the key. They surely don't expect me to perform an entire storage unit's worth of stories, including many still under copyright, on the show. But they most certainly want something. And I'm too invested now to turn my back on all this. Besides, I don't think the stories in this storage unit would let me, even if I wanted to. I shall dig in further. I have a few avenues of inquiry I'll be pursuing before next week. Maybe then I'll be more comfortable sharing further details of what's in here. But for now, we return to journals. After I'd glanced over the ten volumes chronicling Mary Beth Carter's life, each screaming at me to tell their story despite me finding nothing worth sharing in my brief perusal, I found another, much shorter journal tucked on the shelf below. On a whim, I removed this one, and the screaming in my head grew louder. This was the story they wanted to be told next. An inscription inside the journal informed me that it was once the property of one Tad Meekum. But this person, whose name strikes a familiar chord in my mind, does not appear in the journal itself. Instead, the journal recounts a horrific series of events from the 1890s in which a plague overtook a village. It appears to be written by a woman named Margaret. In the spirit of the podcast, I have adapted the journal into a dramatization, although all the original writing is intact. We created a recording of the journal, which I joined Nicole Doolin, Dan Zapula, Peter Lewis, Nicole Goodnight, Aaron Lillis, Matthew Bradford, Sarah Thomas, and Kristen DiMercurio in performing. Since it's, again, someone's personal diary, it has no title, but I call it Corpse Grin. October 1st, 1892. Father Morgan came by the house last night. As I pressed open the door to welcome him inside, he forced it back on me, coughing into a cloth. No, I am unwell. I could hear that he had tears in his eyes, his voice shaken and backed away from the door. What can I do? Margaret, you know full well that there is nothing to be done. You've kept yourself and your family clean, healthy, safe from this disease. He wept then, behind the door. 
The frantic shouting up the road now as normal as crickets chirping or wolves howling had once been. Even the beasts and bugs had been driven away by our unrelenting stench of death. I only ask that you retrieve my father's Bible. Once this has all been sorted out. I will, I said, knowing I would not. Keep well, young Margaret. Keep your child safe. His voice trailed away into the dark of night. The flames. The screaming. October 2nd, 1892. Bertrand, the stable boy, was the first to cough. Most thought it a passing ailment, and rightfully kept clear of him to avoid giving their children over to it. A bout of illness had taken the lives of three infants and two children the previous winter, burning them up with fever before they had gone cold. Bertrand tended the stables long as he could, an admirable feat looking upon it now. Before he collapsed in the hog pen and died later that night in the doctor's care, he had coughed up enough blood to turn the mud in the pen a deep purple, the sows marching it around into an even swath of plum. And Benson Tallmeyer had been questioned extensively about the child's working conditions and how it had come to be that the poor thing had laid in hog droppings for hours, nearly drowning in his own tainted blood before he had gotten the sense to check on him. Benson was dumbfounded, explaining that the boy had only been sneezing, and he hadn't given his condition a second thought when he'd sent him choring. He joked with me, even. He'd told me a real good one about farmhands and farmers' wives. Nothing too appropriate, mind you. The boy was himself. The entire town attended the service, and the choir organized a beautiful dinner afterwards. Bertrand's mother kissed the dead boy just before his casket was nailed shut, or so I am told, and she fell ill shortly after the service. She died in her own vomit not a week later, and just as that news spread, so too did the news that each of Bertrand's pallbearers were laid in bed with severe fatigue. Their funerals were joint, their attendance sparse, and all but family had forgone the after-service dinner. The caskets were left in the church when the pallbearers refused to touch the boxes. And there, I assume, they still remain. October 2nd, 1892. Emma and Rachel have lived next to me my entire life. When I'd inherited the family home after father's passing, both women had been tending to their own ailing parents. Rachel lived upstairs and Emma downstairs, each having a small family of their own. We often met for luncheon or tea. Since the death of Emma's husband, Jonathan, a year ago, his having fallen under the wheels of a wagon in the lumberyard, his ribcage pressed into his lungs, she no longer attended these dates. And since the sickness had overcome stone rest, we saw nothing of Rachel either. It is because of this that tonight's event has not yet crept from my mind. From my bedroom window, I am able to see across the pasture behind our house. The wildflowers blooming there had died far too early this year and left nothing but the sway of brittle gray stalks. And if I press up to the glass, I can see the window to Emma's room. 
The small square of glass on the back of the house was often illuminated deep into night. As Emma wrote her memoirs once her child had fallen asleep, this had not been so since Jonathan's death. Her room remained dark and her curtains drawn, as if she no longer existed. This frame of mind had only bolstered my imagination into such a state that I no longer looked toward their home once the descent of twilight painted everything black and blue. I would draw my own curtains before supper and move freely about my room at dark, no longer thinking much about Emma or her family. So when I stepped toward the window early this evening, the smell of the vegetable soup I'd made fill in the house, the haggard image of Emma standing at her window drew out a shriek as I jumped back into my dressing table and shattered the rose-painted wash basin my mother had gifted me on my wedding day. Emma remained there, and only a dressing gown stained in great sickly stripes down the front, and watched me. Her eyes fell in shadow, and her form was ghostly beyond the pain. Her hand rose to gently touch the glass. The bedroom door banged open, and my husband Jeffrey stumbled in. What is it? I looked toward Jeffrey, then back to Emma's window. An empty square of black. October 3rd, 1892. Ingmar from the post office killed himself last night. He knotted a rope and jumped from the great willow tree in our pasture. He's jumped from a high enough branch and his rope is short enough to make cutting him down a terrible task though no one seems to be considering removing him at all. His mouth is surrounded by sores that were yellow and red before they had turned purple and blue. He has a bleeding rash around his neck. He'd caught it. He'd caught it and put a stop to it before his fate was the same as that of his wife and daughter. He was an immigrant. He spoke in English quite poor and a very hard worker. His family had all been blonde and looked delicate as porcelain. The sores were visible much sooner on such fair complexions, and they knew their daughters would die long before their daughters knew. Their cherubic faces splotched with red marks, like heel and bee stings as they wandered along streets, paying no attention to the people rushing across the road to avoid them. Their oldest died first at a mere seven years old. Her body was curled in a cornfield outside of town. Her face and chest slick with hardened black blood, and her eyes a misty yellow and gray. She'd been picked at by crows, a number of them stiff and dead next to her, and her mouth was open wide in an eternal scream. They had said it would be best to burn her right then, not risk it. At this her mother had marched in and gathered her daughter's crumpled form into her arms. She is a child, she said, tears coarse in her face and fallen to model the dried blood on her daughter's cheeks. Not a street dog. She carried the girl away, the townsfolk dashing apart as she passed by. She disappeared into her darkened house with the corpse. She never came out. Her youngest daughter never came out. Where Ingmar's wife had seemed to disappear, he seemed insistent on our recognizing his death. And at night, if the breeze is just right, 
I can hear the rope creak and the buttons of his jacket tinkle against his wrist cuffs. October 4th, 1892. Where is hell? My own little Hannah asked me this not long after the first spreading of the illness. Thomas Anderson said it's a great cave that goes deeper and deeper into the dark. She turned to me with eyebrows raised. No one knows for sure, darling. Just that it is there. Can we find hell? If we found the cave? Could we go in? I parted a curl from her eyes. Her hair the same sullen shade of brown I'd been gifted by my mother. And shook my head no. She seemed relieved. Why not? You can only go into hell after death. And only if you've been very bad. So you will never see such a place, my darling. This conversation strikes me as curious now. I often wake up each morning expecting some spell to be lifted from stone rest. I expect the wild flowers to bloom and Rachel to stop over for supper with her children. I expect it all to go away. It is far too incredible to be real, isn't it? So much death in such a small place. It couldn't be real, could it? It's in these wells of despair that Hannah's question floats in my mind. Can we find hell? I believe we can. October 7th, 1892. The corpse grin. That is what they are calling it. It begins with a cough. Small at first, then longer and drier before becoming harder and wetter. Symptoms cannot be hidden for long. After a few days of coughing, there is a near-constant mingling of blood and saliva, causing one's teeth to remain a slick shade of orange-red, and their breath continuously reeks of copper, smiling the smile of a dead man. October 10th, 1892. Emily Holbrook ran the streets last night, up and down until morning, screaming for help. Her baby, only four months old, was not breathing. She crashed into doors, shaking their handles and kicking at them like a burglar determined to get in. Somebody help! Help me help my baby! Oh God, please! Help my child, please! Her cries echoed among the houses. The soft glow of candlelight humming in the dark as curtains were curiously pulled back, then again closed like gigantic blinking eyes. When it was my turn, I stood a foot from the door, Jeffrey's axe in my hands, as she clattered against it. Margaret! Margaret! Please help my child! Help my child! Save her, please! As I spoke to the door, the pounding ceased. Emily, get the doctor. You must get the doctor. At this, there was a lengthy pause, the sound of her breathing faint beyond the door, before a hideous peal of laughter tore from her throat. The cackle was sickening, deep and horrible, the kind of sound that bounced from leafless trees in a great dead forest. The doctor! She howled with laughter as she stumbled up the street, her gray child clutched in her arms. October 14th, 1892. 
Emily and her child are lying face down in the street, mud covering them. Their skin has burst apart in places, exposed to the careless steps of horses or the rolling of wagon wheels. Emily's flesh is beginning to turn green. Her child's a spoiled purple, and their smell creeps into the sitting room of our house. Jeffrey has taken to stuffing rags around the door and the windows, but thus far it has done little good. It seems to follow the cold in the mice, finding its way inside despite our efforts. We do not allow Hannah out of the house. This has been so since the first signs of corpse grin, but she managed to catch a glimpse of Emily in the street through her bedroom window. She asked why she insisted on sleeping in the mud, And wouldn't her baby catch cold? She asked if she couldn't go out and give them a blanket. I told her that it was very kind of her, but that they are not cold and that God is looking after them now in heaven. She accepted this and went about her day, though I did catch her at the window a number of times throughout the afternoon and into the evening, her gentle brown eyes fixed curiously upon death. October 16th, 1892. Jeffrey came home from hunting late last night, his voice ragged, and he held the front door shut between us, just as the father had. I have a cough. It's not a bad one. But anything at all is cause to worry. I'm going to wait in the barn a few days, just to be sure. Don't be silly. I pressed at the door. Open it. Margaret, leave it be. I gave the door one last shove and backed away, shaking my head. Am I to throw your supper from the back window? You can eat it from the trough with the hogs? The hogs are dead. I'll have the trough to myself. His laugh was forced and quiet, his following footsteps slow as he trailed from the porch and into the backyard. The muffled sound of his cough tracing his location until the barn door slammed shut. I watched the barn from the kitchen window, unaware of Hannah standing next to me, squeezing her doll tight. Is Papa sleeping outside? In the barn, yes. Does he have it too? Have what, darling? I bent down, touching her soft ringlets. The bloody smile? The corpse grin? Her eyes did not move from the flicker of candlelight in the barn. I tried my best to conceal my alarm. No, he is fine. Who's told you about that? Papa? No, not Papa. Who then? The dead woman. She pointed toward her room. The one who taps on my window at night. October 18th. I nearly watched Beth Marshall's house burn to the ground last night. The sound of voices, men shouting, drew me from bed and I draped my shoulders in a shawl. Hannah stirred, having slept in my bed the past few nights while Jeffrey passed his cough in the barn and rubbed her eyes. What is it, Mama? The alarm in her sleep-hazed face was that of a deer, having just escaped a cougar. Her eyes instinctively moved toward her room, toward her window. Who is it, Mama? Shh. Go back to sleep, darling. It's Mr. Nichols and his farmhands loading lumber. 
This calmed her immediately, and she slipped again into sleep. Mr. Nichols had died weeks ago, of course, spitting black blood over his porch, crushing his face in it when he fell. The men had encircled Beth Marshall's quaint cottage, made to her specifications by her loving husband, each with a blazing torch in hand. Weak as they were, I could hear Beth's pleas from inside the house, and those of her screaming children. This, it would seem, was too much for me. I drew the bolt on the front door and rushed out into the muddy street. Stop! Jeremiah! Robert! They paid no mind, so I moved closer, the mud squishing up between my toes. The feeling of earth beneath my feet, instead of floorboards, was mesmerizing. It was as though I had been locked away for fifty years and was just now touching soil for the first time. Stop! The men turned toward me. What are you presuming to do? Robert Mulch, a large red-faced oaf that hauled loads for the mill, shouted back. Get back to your house, Margaret. This is no business of yours. If you are to set fire to a home with a woman and children inside, I should believe it is my business. I put a finger in his face, a gesture I had not thought it possible for me to ever use. I pointed to the house, my eyes bulging and my voice wavering. We are all sick. Are you going to burn the entire settlement to the ground? House by house? He looked startled, taking a step back and glancing at his cohorts. I advanced, my finger moving higher to point between his eyes. Why not scoop Emily out of the street instead? Why not cut Ingmar down from the tree? If you are so concerned with cleansing the corpse grin. Otherwise, leave her and her children be. Robert studied me for a long while. The soft crackle of their torches the only sound in the still rotten air. Let's go, boys. He extinguished his torch in the mud. The other men followed suit. He moved up to the door and ripped free the board they had nailed across the doorframe. He seemed to study the board a moment and then tossed it aside. Margaret, you best pray it is never you sick behind a door. You won't be able to wag that tongue if the burning house was your own. He gave a slight smile and moved along after his mob. The silence within Beth's house was now full of quiet sobs, whispers of reassurance and her yellowed eyes appeared in the window. Her children, sallow and gray as the skirts she wore, clung to her, their eyes puffed with tears and infection. Thank you. May God bless you, I replied with a nod, turning back to my own darkened house. Once safely behind my own door once again, I spoke. May he have mercy on your souls. October 20th, 1892. Jeffrey did not come out of the barn this morning for his breakfast. The plate still sits, full and ruined by cold, on the back step. I called out to him, even rang the bell tacked to the doorframe, but still he did not appear. Hannah voiced her concern. 
making note of how the barn door is slightly ajar, and how it has remained that way all day. Is Papa dead? Don't speak like that. Never speak of your father that way. His teeth were red on Sunday. When we read from Matthew at the window before supper, did you see? Of course I had seen. No, darling, it was communion wine. The father brought it over to him, so he can get better. The father is dead. Her unbothered manner caused my flesh to prickle. Who told you that? I touched her cheek. She pulled away from me. I saw it, his ashes, in the churchyard. She pointed in the general direction of the chapel. They burned him up by the headstones. I felt my eyes well up. Yes. Will we burn Papa? I slapped her. It was as if my hand had a mind of its own, and her head rocked against her shoulders. Leave the table and go to your room. I will not have that talk in our home. She marched away and turned to me at her doorway. I hate you. I would burn you up. If you died, Mama, I would burn you up. She whisked inside and slammed the door. October 21st, 1892. I went to Jeffrey last night. I led myself to the barn by lantern light, the wind biting at my skin through my bedclothes as I continuously glanced toward the dark windows of Emma's house. I moved toward the side door, the one Jeffrey had not touched since his cough, and gently rapped on the frame. Jeffrey! I angled my ear to the wood. The silence within was thick, as if the building held its breath while I listened, and I knocked again. Jeffrey, you've missed breakfast and supper. Are you feeling all right? The odor creeping out from around the doorframe was sharp and pungent. Rot. Decay. I felt my eyes sting as I tried once more, my voice warbling. I'm coming inside, darling. I pressed the door, hoping it might be locked tight from inside, but watched it drift open and into the darkness. The smell overtook me. The same stench we have grown so accustomed to in these dark months. The same smell that stains our clothes and our hair. Vomit. Feces, blood, that deep black blood heaved up from the guts, the smell of death, the buzz of flies, the new signals that one had arrived in stone rest. I moved inside, pulling my bedclothes around me tight as the patter of flies against my skin and in my nose and ears were so constant it began to feel like the hands of some faceless creature pulling me into my doom. They sizzled as they trapped themselves in the oil lamp and burned, the orange glow accented by the sparkles of their burning flesh. I felt the hay go damp beneath my feet, the straw gummy, and looked down through the flies to the dark sludge underfoot. Although futile, I could not help myself. I yelled into the swarm and the stink. Jeffrey! I stepped forward, the blood deepening in my boots sliding against the floorboards beneath the hay. Come out! 
as if my call had indeed been heard, there appeared Geoffrey, his body slumped in the chair, half of his head drooped far back, and the rest spattered in a dry, blackened mass on the wall. The shotgun lay at his feet, both barrels emptied, and a scrawled note was pinned to his shirt. I moved closer, leaning in toward the note. The flies buzzing sounded more and more like screams. I blinked away tears. I held my breath the closer I came to his gray-green flesh. Slick with the slime, his skin seeming to move in the sheet of squirming maggots. His script was haggard but legible. I... I had to. I was never going to see her again. I may have damned her with a kiss on the cheek. Forgive me, my love. Forgive me. I was unable to keep my hands from shaking as I backed away, choking on his stink, my head spinning. I closed my eyes and spoke, but could not hear my own voice. The flies, like hands, moving against every inch of my body. Each of them bloated on the flesh of my husband. I dropped the lantern and felt the burst of flames as it lapped at the hay. The buzz of flies was soon engulfed in the crackle of dry straw and burning wood. I watched the fire as it boiled the spoiled blood on the ground and encircled Jeffrey in his chair, the remainder of his head thrown back as if in a howl of laughter. He looked like the devil himself, laughing upon his throne in the depths of hell. October 22nd, 1892. Did Papa kiss you? Checking her mouth and neck for sores. She looked at me as if I were mad, her eyes betraying this confidence, watery and apologetic. I squeezed her hand in mine. Did your Papa kiss you, Hannah? She watched me, a tear trailing over her stoic cheek, and nodded. Yes, Mama. The poor sleep and the long nights. The hunger for something more than grain and biscuits. That lingering image of Jeffrey's black flesh peeling away from rotted muscle as I fled the barn. All of it caused me to curl into myself on the floor. My own face pouring with sorrow. <laughs> Hannah watched me but did not move. Her own eyes gushing over rosy cheeks. <laughs> Her lip beginning to quiver. I'm going to die now, aren't I, Mama? I wept harder still, unable to placate her, to rub away her fears and smother them in the love of a mother's lies. I wept until I gagged, and every sob cramped my stomach in pain. Hannah laid on the floor next to me, keeping her distance her face covered in her hands. I felt for her, taking her dress by the waist and pulling her into my arms. She pulled me close, her small hands gripping the loose tendrils of my hair, her body shaking. You said we wouldn't burn Daddy up, Mama. I don't want to die. I don't want to be burned up. 
I swallowed hard and managed it. The comfort. The lies. Everything is gonna be all right. Everything is going to be all right. October 31st, 1892. I managed to dig it myself. The task was arduous with the ground so cold, but not impossible. I lay with my face nearly pressed into the freshly turned earth, the cold unnoticed even as my own fingers turned blue, and I spoke about memories. I reminded her of the creek and her strange fear of rabbits. I smiled at the image of Hannah causing Jeffrey to laugh porridge through his nose at breakfast. The nights around the fire... The days in the woods. Another life. The flicker of Beth's home, finally up in flames. The men shouting in the street. Made the weeds twitch and Ingmar's wasted flesh thrash at the end of his rope. The blackened remains of my barn shuddered like a crowd of hooded silhouettes against the purple of a full moon. This cannot be real. I sit every moment. Waiting to wake from this nightmare. I wake from sleep to wish that I had died. Whatever we have done to deserve such misery can only be answered in the next life. If it is heaven, I will gladly accept the reprieve. I will sit in my chair under the oak and prop my feet on the stump and breathe easy. I close my eyes spit in the dirt from between my lips <sighs> and if it be hell I will shrug and carry on just as I have during these endless days I will not know the difference I kissed the dry crumbled earth and stood my hands somewhere beyond my wrists but imperceptible in the vicious cold and turned to the house Within the projected flickering of Beth's burning cottage was a soft orange glow, a square of light in the back of Emma's house, her room, where she used to write her memoirs. The dead woman. She spoke to my daughter. Why would she not also write? This brought a cold smile to my lips, my tears seeming to freeze before reaching my chin and I made my way to Rachel and Emma's home. I knocked on the back door, afraid the front entrance might draw the attention of Robert Mulch. Still barking orders over the burning remains of Beth, her home, and her children. He would no doubt enjoy setting my home ablaze next if given any reason. Sun-rotted chips of wood fell away as I rapped on the door, the hinges squeaking with strain under the minimal effort. Emma? Emma, are you there? The lock snapped open, but the door did not move, simply hung there, as if waiting for me. I pressed it forward and watched it swing open into the dark house. The whisper of a mottled white gown vanished into the blackness of the dining room. How badly the house smelled, I was not aware. The endless smell of sickness and decaying or burned human flesh as common as manure or spring blooms had once been. 
the piles of used cookware in China were immense. The presence of flies as they aimlessly bumped into my skin, the dead ones crunching softly in a carpet underfoot, was nearly unnoticeable. My own home had filled with the same concession of insects, only becoming a bother once the maggots appeared. Only moving her once the maggots appeared. Emma? I closed the door behind me. Emma, are you here? Come in, please. Her voice was smooth and breathy. It sounded no different than the number of times she had coaxed me in for a cup of tea or a chat. Before, of course. She sounded like she had before any of this. I stepped around chicken bones and scraps of vegetable peel on the floor. Mysterious puddles hardened into dark stains. Pieces of broken dishes and half-full pots of gelatinous, moldy stew. Their hound, Walnut, whom I had taken to be sleeping in the corner, was merely bones with furry leather stretched and ripped over top. His eyes dried, scabby sockets. He was starved long ago, it would seem. Perhaps the beast had caught the grin. There had been rumors of animals spreading the disease, but none of them suffering it. I stood in the doorway to Emma's dining room and was surprised to find a number of silhouettes encircling Emma as she presided over the head of the table, defined from the soupy black with moonlight and burning house's flame. She sat in the darkness, the song of flies buzzing the only sound, until she rose from her seat, her heels clicking on the hardwood floor as she retrieved the oil lamp from the side table. Her featureless shape turned to me. Sit, Margaret. Thank you. My heart beat in my ears as I stepped across the room, waist clattering underfoot as I nudged it aside. Hello, I said to the person next to me. Whether they had acknowledged my presence, I was unable to tell. The sound of flies and the shouts of men in the street cloaked any subtle interaction we might have shared. Is that Rachel? The room is quite dark, isn't it? Emma struck the match and I gasped as the flame illuminated her dinner guests. She hummed as she lit the lantern, turning to the table, the light carving out the wasted form of Rachel from the dark. Her sunken eyes gazed dumbly up at the ceiling, her neck propped up on a broken broomstick positioned under her chin. Emma's daughters sat slumped into one another, seeming to have mummified together into one being here in the dark. Rachel's child laid face down, the since-dried puddle of his rot blooming out from his plate and over the surface of the table, black and shining. The men are off, providing. (laughs) You know how they are. Always busy. Always providing. Emma... It was all I could manage as she set the oil lamp in the center of the table. The sunken faces of her family cast in black shadows over the walls. You're worried I can't spare the bread and butter, aren't you? She looked sternly at her daughters, as if they had just made a horrible remark, and then smiled at me over the glow of the lamp. I assure you, we haven't been eating much these days. There is plenty to go around. And it is so nice to have a guest. She motioned to the spread, a molding cluster of platters. Some covered in a haze of dust, 
and others glistening and freshly spoiled, none of it edible. No, thank you. I had supper not long ago. With your family? I paused a long while. Yes. With Jeffrey? With Hannah? He... Yes. Yes. With them both. She nodded absently, her smile fading as her eyes were lost in the flicker of the flame. I thought I might do it, too. That I might pick up a shovel and do it, too. God knows my family was not rich coming up, and I've dug my share of ditches. Her blank eyes fell on me. But my strength was not in it, I suppose. The thought. I could not bear it. Everyone has lost much. She smiled, puzzled. Many have, yes. But we are fortunate. Her long fingers trailed through the dull strands of her daughter's hair. We have lost very little. I had dreams, terrors that my family had gone away. But dreams are only dreams. We are here now, together. That is all that matters. I felt tears fall from my face as I nodded in agreement. Perhaps she was right. Perhaps it was all quite normal. And the shriveled face of Rachel could form lips over her dried teeth to smile. And again from her blue eyes in their sockets. To read and write and find her way to my house in the night to speak with my daughter. Perhaps it had been Rachel after all. And why not? Nothing had changed. And we were together. I looked past Rachel's son, sleeping at the table, and found a large figure of crumpled char. I could make out the shock of white bone appearing at his shoulders, and much of his arm in a simple pile on the tablecloth. His head was all but gone. Emma touched his hand. Jeffrey, say hello to your wife. She has missed you so. She smiled over the lantern, her face wavering in a void of dark. I showed him inside, to stay until you were able to reunite once more. He has been an exemplary guest. My stomach roiled in knots, threatening to void its meager contents into the rotten platters. And I stole another glance at the remains of my husband. Emma put her hand over Rachel's and gave it a gentle squeeze the dry flesh given a low crackling before cutting into the glistening mound on her own plate. She turned toward a distinct voice, shouting in the street, and found Robert Mulch was standing before my home, hollering. The torch in his hand gave him a rather ghoulish form, and I glanced at Emma, her attention on him as well. He's been acting quite strange lately, hasn't he? I swallowed the lump in my throat and managed a single word. Quite. I took the teacup before me in my shaken hand and smelled the cold liquid inside. It smelled of nothing and I took a small sip. Water. The instant my mouth salivated over the hydration, I could taste copper. Like sucking on metal. And I brought my fingers up to my lips. They came away dark. I felt my way around my teeth with my tongue and could taste only blood. Emma returned her gaze to mine, her silhouette slowly darkening as the flames outside came closer. 
Perhaps we should gather up Hannah after supper. I have a room all made up. I nodded. I smiled. That sounds lovely. In our next tale, we find ourselves in post-war Berlin. Times are tough, obviously. People are struggling to survive. Everything seems sparse, especially food. But in this tale, shared with us by author E.C. Dobson, it seems like one store owner might be provided a lifeline. I join Tanya Milosevic, Jeff Clement, and Graham Rowett in performing this tale. So don't let yourself suffer. Take the help, even if it's in exchange for providing help in return. But make sure you study the terms of the letter. Otherwise, you might find yourself wrapped up in something you'd prefer to avoid, at least when you're dealing with the butcher. War makes monsters of men, or so they say. It feels like a lifetime ago now. And as I reach what must be the final chapters of my life, there isn't much time left to reflect on what I've seen during my decades on this odd little planet of ours. That war, it changed the face of the world more than anything I've seen since. Countless people died. Men, women, children. Our neighbors were taken in the night. Hell, some of our own even handed them over. Some survived, but were never the same again. Their sanity hanging by a thread. Their bodies like living skeletons. We all have our stories to tell. Some more grisly than others. In the grand scheme of things, mine is probably just a dark footnote buried away at the bottom of a page in a long litany of human suffering. But I'll record it just the same. Not for the sake of the history books, but so that I can exercise this dark shadow always lingering in my periphery before I go. It must have been about 75 years ago if you can believe it. And I and most of the other inhabitants of Berlin were starving. The little food that made it into the city was snapped up straight away by those with inside information or the wealthy who were willing to pay through the nose. You could tell which shops had stock by the long queues of locals that clogged the roads, braving the bitter cold of the burnt-out city for the chance of a meal. One day, however, it seemed as if our prayers had been answered. The word on the street was that the butchery on Karstenstrasse had received a huge quantity of meat, so I was in line with the others. 
This line was bigger than any I had ever witnessed, and it was no surprise why. Rows of meat could be seen above people's heads in the window, like ranks of soldiers illuminated by a halo of electric lights. The line, though, orderly and for the most part double file, was buzzing with excitement. We could all taste the sweet metallic flavors on our tongues through the glass. Inside, bundles of Reichsmarks were clutched in desperate fists and forced over the counter in return for sustenance, while those of us still out in the cold rubbed our hands together and salivated, fantasizing about the feeling of our soon-to-be-full bellies. Eventually, I was through the door, basking in the light, the relative warmth and giddy atmosphere. It was like Christmas. The counter was even more heavily laden than the shelves in the window. Sausages, mints, kidneys, and liver were spread out around the basic steaks. The butcher stood behind the counter, holding a boning knife. I noticed that he was quite handsome and, I thought, surprisingly slender for a butcher. Even in these difficult times, with sharp blue eyes and the slightest shadow of a dimple in his chin. The butcher began to talk to the man in front of me in the queue. The man had his back to me and handed a large parcel wrapped in brown paper to the butcher. If the man said anything, the words were lost in the animated hum of the crowd, all collectively pressing in toward the counter. As he turned around, I could see that he was blind. A white cane hung from his right wrist by a cord, and he wore perfectly round, reflective sunglasses, the lenses looking like twin moons in the electric lamps. The butcher fixed his eyes upon mine. How may I help you, young lady? The blind man smiled, only one side of his mouth rising. A young lady? Good morning. What would you like, Fräulein? Muller. I'd like two steaks, please. Well, Fräulein Muller, I'm Herbert Keller. Pleased to meet you. The butcher smiled and busied himself wrapping two thick pink steaks. Our fingers brushed as I handed over the money, and again as he passed the wrapped meat over the counter. I must admit I was distracted for a moment by the sparkle of his eyes. It was the voice of the other man that brought me back. The blind man held out a hand for me to shake. I thought it a fitting name for him. It sounded just like the hissing of a snake. I put my hand in his. He had a surprisingly strong grip. It was the mustard gas that got me. Sankt pointed to his black glasses. In the first war, our own stuff. You adapt surprisingly quick, though. It must be nearly 25 years now since I lost my sight. But it heightens the other senses considerably. I didn't know quite what to say. Makes getting around a lot more difficult, though. He paused and wetted his lips. Do excuse me for asking, Fräulein Müller, but would you be so kind as to do me a favor? I didn't even have time to respond before he continued pushing the envelope into my hands. It's this letter. Could you deliver it for me? 
I was unsure of what to do. Sankt made me feel uneasy. Just the very tip of his tongue emerged from between his lips, tasting the air, like a snake does when it's hunting its prey. But he was blind, and he'd asked for my help. Surely there was no harm in delivering a letter for him. Keller was looking at me expectantly, eyes shining. My mind was made up. Certainly. I turned the letter over. There was no stamp, just a house number and a street name. It was clearly intended to be delivered by hand. Number 66, Brondistraza. You go along Luzerna Straza, and you can't miss the sign. I would go myself, but the steps are so uneven. I can't really manage them without my sight. At this, he hung his head, and I felt overwhelmed by a wave of pity. Don't worry, Herr Sankt. I will deliver your letter. Thank you ever so much, my dear. Then he turned to Keller. And thank you, Herbert. I'll be in again soon, no doubt. Keller was already serving the next customers, but he cast a glance at Sankt and threw a wink in my direction. I felt the blood rush to my cheeks and turned toward the door, the ghost of a smile tugging at the corners of my mouth. I wondered if Keller had winked at anyone else that day. As I watched Sankt hobble out, the crowd parting for him to leave, I put the wrapped stakes into my satchel then looked from the letter to Sankt, who was waiting to cross the road. All of a sudden, I felt that something wasn't right. I stared at him, unblinking. This feeling had come from nowhere, but it had me fixed to the spot. A shiny red Volkswagen hummed along. Then, just after it had passed him, he turned to the left, to the right, and then crossed the road. He had looked to the left and then to the right. Sankt was not blind. Over the happy chatter of eager customers, Keller addressed me. I was standing completely still, staring through the doorway, eyes wide with shock. Is anything the matter? Stammering, I turned back to face him. No, everything's... everything's fine. My eyes flashed back to the doorway. Sankt was gone. Clasping Sankt's letter, and without looking back, I hurried from the shop. My head was spinning, and I could feel myself growing dizzy. I had a horrible, heavy feeling in my stomach, and took a few deep breaths to steady myself. Why did he do that? Why did he dress as a blind man, with the dark glasses and the cane? Why did he tell that story about the mustard gas? So that people felt sorry for him? My hands were beginning to sweat now, hot needles pricking my palms. And if he wasn't blind, then why did he need me to deliver the letter for him? In an instant, I realized how ridiculous I was being. So what if he had turned his head when he crossed the road? It didn't mean that he had actually seen anything. Maybe he did it out of habit, from a time before the gas had burnt his eyes. He was a war hero, and I doubted him, because he still clung on to the little rituals of everyday life, as if his sight had never been destroyed. Shaking my head at the vividness of my own overactive imagination, I started to walk, 
I was on Karstenstrasse and could see Lusenerstrasse and its old, uneven steps up ahead. I increased my pace, half running. Then nimbly descended the steps, which were cracked and crumbling. It was understandable that Sankt did not want to attempt these in his condition, even with his cane. Lusenerstrasse curved sharply around. An empty bakery, a police station, and the burnt-out shells of some ruined arms factories could be seen to the right, and a number of residential roads branched off to the left. I noted their names as I passed each one. Predauerfad, Lichterfelderweg. I rounded the corner, and there it was in front of me. Brombistrasse. It was quite a way ahead. I could only just make it out on the street sign... But the road was straight now, cutting through the half-bombed blocks of flats, dense with rubble. The misshapen buildings were taller, blocking out more and more light as I went on. My eyes were stinging from the wind that whipped up dust and debris all around me, and realizing that the hum that surrounded the queue outside the butchers had now completely died away, leaving nothing but the swirl of the chill breeze. I began to regret coming this far. The houses past the flats looked completely deserted. Some had no roofs, no doors. Bombs had scorched the doors. Windows were dark and glassless. Occasionally, a house stood relatively unscarred by the machines of war, though even these seemed to be abandoned by their owners. The first of these houses had brass numbers screwed next to the door. 52. One of the screws had come loose, and the two was upside down. I continued walking. Another untouched house stood about 50 feet ahead. I could tell already that this was the house I was looking for. A single damaged window was boarded up. The rest were all intact and each had drawn curtains. The number 66 was painted on the wall in flaking red paint. I was beginning to feel uncomfortable, faced with these ruins of the city that had been so familiar to me. It looked deserted, but it felt like something was there with me. It was probably just some stray cat skulking in the shadows. Maybe my imagination was playing tricks on me, Either way, my suspicions about Sankt came flooding back. Why did he entrust his letter to a complete stranger? What, he couldn't send it in the post? And why to this house, with the curtains drawn at every window? A few drops began to fall from the dark blanket of cloud overhead. My lip trembled, and I thought I felt a tear escape from the corner of my eye though I told myself it was just a streak of rain. I looked at the door a couple of steps away from me. There was no letterbox, but there was a knocker, shaped like a woman's face. A blunt line carved into the brass to form a disapproving mouth. I reached my hand out, fingers stretching. But I couldn't do it. I couldn't go up to that door. This had all been a terrible mistake. Holding my satchel close to my chest, I began to run back down the street as fast as I possibly could, passing the blackened bomb flats and then 
after what seemed like an age, coming back to the comforting familiarity of Lucerstrasse. Out of breath, and my stomach turning itself inside out, I stopped trying to regain a semblance of composure. The rain on my cheeks made my skin feel uncomfortable, tight, and as the thundering of my heart subsided, giving way to an eerie ringing in my ears, I realized I had been digging the fingernails of my empty hand into my palm, leaving a row of angry crescents. I walked for a few more minutes, almost in a trance now, and came to the steps. Without thinking, I headed toward the police station I had passed earlier. Feeling like I was sleepwalking, I approached the desk, showing my lip. The metallic taste of blood spilled onto my tongue. Good morning. A friendly-looking policeman with a thick mustache smiled at me. Or should I say, good afternoon? He checked his wristwatch. Yes, just gone twelve. What can I do for you? What's your name? At his kindness and his warm human smile, my eyes filled up with tears. Ingrid Muller. I think I've been really stupid. I, I was asked to take this letter by a blind man, and I said I'd deliver it, but then I didn't think he was really blind, and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't take it to the house. Everything around there was abandoned. I was aware my speech was getting faster and faster, but there was nothing I could do to slow it. The policeman put a calming hand on mine and took the letter. His kind eyes were now serious. You say that this was from a blind man? Yes, his name was Sankt. Sankt, eh? The policeman stroked his mustache meditatively. He's friends with the butcher, Herbert. Keller? Yes, that's it. Odd, very odd indeed. He picked up a pencil and began to chew the end. Start from the beginning. Were you in the butchery? I went in to buy this. I opened the satchel and brought out the wrapped steaks. And I saw them talking, Sankt and the butcher. Sankt handed him a parcel, I think. And when I got to the front of the queue, he asked me to take the letter for him. He said he couldn't do it because of the steps. When he left, I watched him. And as he crossed the road, he looked left and right. I thought perhaps he was only pretending to be blind. I went to deliver the letter anyway, but couldn't. I just couldn't go up to the house. Fräulein Mueller, I will see that a man is sent to your house, and I will examine the letter. If you like, you can take a seat. I'll get you a cup of tea, and you can relax. There was pity in his eyes. I couldn't tell if he was humoring me, but I sat all the same. From my seat, I watched the clock. It's regular and reassuring tick, giving me something to focus on. After a couple of minutes, the policeman handed me some tea. I sipped at it, but it was quite bitter, so I left the rest, letting it go cold next to me, and continued to look at the rhythmic hands, their small twitching motions reminding me of the pecking of birds at crumbs. I sat like that for an hour before the policeman returned. His face had turned an odd shade, and his hands were trembling wildly. You are very lucky to be alive, Fräulein Müller. The house was full of human... meat. 
He swallowed and took a seat next to me. And the letter? He pulled it out from his front pocket. He said nothing else, just handed it to me and let me read. This is the last one I'll send you this week. Have you ever had a problem with vermin? A seemingly endless invasion from an army of mindless, squeaking terrors? Throughout history, rodent infestations have caused devastating tragedies. But thankfully, there are those out there who put a stop to these rats. But in this tale, shared with us by author Mariska Pichette, we learn that the cost of pest control can be high indeed. Performing this tale, are Jessica McAvoy, Aaron Lillis, Jeff Clement, and Wafia White. So, the rats have arrived. But thankfully, the catcher is not far behind. So let's hope they're dealt with soon as they scamper through the town and you can hear them squeak and bite and chew and scratch. She came to Fatum two days after the rats, her feet spattered with mud, her face round and healthy. She had no hair but wrapped her head in cloths of many colors, dyes we hadn't seen in months. Plague makes all things scarce. We first heard about the coming of the rats from a tinker. She entered our village and stayed at our inn. That was two weeks before the woman came. The tinker's name was Gloris. The night she arrived, she told us about the rats as you wiped the bar with a stained cloth. I came from Shadow. Some of us knew the name. It was a town twelve miles north. Sipping from glasses and cups, we waited for her to continue. I was going to settle there, wait out the winter with plenty of business and a strong roof over my head, a strong wall around me in my cart. Gloris lowered her head. She was in her fifties, her skin betraying her origin from the north. She stood out in our midst, pale and wrinkled by care. Her eyes were a disconcerting blue. Why did you leave? One of us asked. At the bar, you'd stopped paying attention to your work, your gaze fixed on the tinker. Gloris shook her head a small, trembling motion matched by her hands as they tried to clasp the drink you poured her. They came. We all leaned in to hear the next words. The rats. Gloris moved her cart into your stable. In the first week, we heard little, but travel from the north had started to increase. Chiadao was facing famine and something else too unspeakable for travelers to relay as they passed through our village. As the days passed, the temperature dropping each night, refugees from Chiadao came to stay, then from Darna, 
about seven miles away from Thedom. Plague, we whispered in the streets. You opened rooms that hadn't been filled in years. Your daughter moved in with her brother to free up space. I'm sorry about her. Your son was old enough to escape. When the rooms filled, some of us opened our homes for a price. With winter setting in, it did not pay to support extra bodies without recompense. I took in a weaver who paid her way by crafting marvelous woven goods. When I had all I needed, she moved to a neighbor's house, supplying another of us with the means to survive the cold. She did not stay, however. Not when she, like all of us, heard that Treas had been struck, not two miles north. Then she left. The refugees from Chiadao, from Darna, moved on. Some arrived with scratches on their hands, bites on their necks. These injuries healed before they left. But we worried when Treos happened. Some of us chose to leave before the rats came. You stayed, and so did I. We have weathered many things in our lives. I wish now that you had gone, taken your daughter, and fled with the rest. But we didn't know what would happen after the rats. When the refugees came from Treas, we learned what we were to face. Stores overrun, thatch roofs ruined, vestries profaned. The rats brought filth and disease to Treas, and those that had waited soon found themselves at Fatum's gate, at our gate. We did not have room, so many moved on from there. A few slept in the streets, wincing as winter's teeth bit into their flesh at night. In the morning, some were dead. Perhaps they were luckiest. The next day, the rats came. The day after, many of us fled, taking what food we could rest from black claws and yellow teeth. Those of us who stayed hid what food we could in attics and cellars, along with the children. We hoped they would stay safe together. We shouldn't have put them there. We shouldn't have weighed their value together. You barred your in and stayed. I let the rats in, giving up or wearing out, I don't know. I wanted to stay with you. The day after that, she came. She came from the south, her bald head wrapped in beautiful cloth, her round face free from dirt. She walked barefoot despite the cold, and when she arrived... It started to snow. What few of us remained peered from windows gloved in frost, our breath fogging a screen between us. She walked down the middle of the street. The rats scurried to the sides. Were they afraid? She walked to the church and disappeared inside. We waited. We knew there was no one in the church, save the rats. I don't know how much time passed before you came out of your inn, days unshaven, your hair matted to your head. We all watched as you followed her path, until you too were consumed by the church's waiting doors. You came out first, she following. In the street, you introduced her to us. This is Piper. She can banish the rats. She acknowledged our gazes nodding to the many eyes staring from many windows. Some of us had scratches and bites that took longer than they should to heal. 
We stared at her with her bare feet and bare head, and we were too tired to hope. But hope is a treacherous emotion. I could see it in your face as you stood beside her. Hope for your children. Hope for Fatum. If only we hadn't let it in. Let her in. Piper raised her hands and spoke. I have come to save you from the plague that destroys you. I came too late to Chiadal, Darna, and Treas, but Phaetum still has hope. There, she said it, and we felt it. Treacherous, treacherous word. Some of your stores remain, enough to weather the winter, though there will be shortage. Those of us who remained knew this. We had lost much to the rats, but our underground caches were harder for claws to reach. The rats may have smelled them, but they would have to dig, and the chambers were stone. Could they reach them? Perhaps eventually. If nothing drew them away, they may stay in Fatum for weeks, months, chewing and digging and scratching their way to the last of our food while we sat helpless starving and freezing in our separate homes. You smiled, actually smiled at her, and I was worried by your trust. She was a traveler from the south, and she promised something impossible. She smiled back at you, and our fates were sealed in that exchange. Piper drew something from her multicolored clothing, and we squinted through our windows trying to see what it was that she promised would drive the rats away. For our benefit, she held it up. It was a flute, truly little more than a whistle, so small it could have been the key to the church's door. Watching us watch her, Piper brought the flute to her lips and blew. We did not hear anything, but something rang just outside of our senses a tone we felt against our eardrums and eyes. But the rats, the rats, already restless in Piper's presence, twitched and churned, shrieking in something like pain. Their cries took the place of the flute's music in our ears, and we listened as they suffered as we had. But they did not seem to be dying. The longer Piper played, the more frenzied the rats became, fighting with each other, climbing the walls of our shops and homes. And then, the cats came. From roofs, from attics, from cellars and alleys, black cats poured onto the street. They leapt on the rats, the disoriented beasts hardly able to defend themselves. It was not really a fight. The cats broke the rats' backs, bit off their heads, chewed away their claws and slashed through their fur. We huddled in our homes and watched the cats kill every rat. Then, when it was done, the cats settled down to eat, their payment for the service they rendered. Piper lowered her flute and looked at you. Awe and disgust battled over your face, but at last, you smiled. You, like us, thought we were saved. You laughed, sheer joy twitching from your mouth, and you asked her what payment she wished for killing the rats. She slipped her little flute out of sight. My payment is your survival. You will live, 
because of me. Barefooted, she walked away, past countless rat carcasses, past the feasting of countless cats. She walked through the gate, and we never saw her again in Fadum. With the danger past, we went to the hidden places of our houses, the places we had stowed our most precious, most delicate things. I heard you cry out first. You tore the inn apart looking for your daughter. The rest of us did too. We searched for the children in every house, in the shops, in the church. We did not, at first, realize what had happened. As we rushed and screamed and cried, the black cats withdrew to quieter corners to eat their rats. When at last we gave up, or grew too tired to continue that horrible day, Gloris counted the children missing. Thirty-one. She sat in the street and wept. Through her garbled mumbling, you understood when she said, The cats! Gloris had counted the cats. She had counted thirty-one. We searched the streets, kicking away the rats and shining lanterns into alleyways. But cats are reclusive creatures, and many had left already. We found just twelve cats, each identical to the other. Still, we locked them in the inn and wept the names of the children one by one, straining for recognition. When the cats did nothing but meow and try to escape, one scratching me as I tried to hold it, you swore. The grief in your eyes was dangerous when you decided to kill the twelve cats. We did not know how to stop you, immobilized in our own horror and disbelief. You snatched at the nearest creature. It spat and hissed, drawing blood from you before at last you had it cornered against the bar. I will never free my mind from what next occurred. We felt, once more, that tone outside of hearing, that whistle more in pressure than in sound. As I watched you grasp the cat by its neck, your fist bleeding and tightening, your skin paled, your fingers shrank away, your nails sharpening into claws as you fell from your clothes. The last I saw of you, True, you, was the anguish in your eyes as they grew bulbous and wet in your lengthening skull. None of us screamed. Perhaps a part of us expected this, had mourned you the moment you spoke of murder. We watched in silence as the cats ripped you apart, the last rat to die in Fadum. We barely survived that winter. The stone store caches ran out in late April, and we managed to trade for the last of our food before the crops grew again. Though we were hungry, deprived of protein when the dried meat ran out in February, none of us considered killing a single cat. Many of them stayed through the winter, finding warmth in attics and barns. They kept the mice at bay, and maybe some of us realized the patterns of their movements. They hovered around the homes of families who once tended children. I know one thing. We would not have survived were there 31 more mouths to feed. The store caches could not have supported so many for so long. 
Now, as spring at last shows its face, I sit at my window and look at your inn. As I watch, a black cat hops up on the step and lies down to bask in the tentative sun. Have you ever been caught in the middle of a feud between two people and you can't pick a side? It could be because you like both of them. It could be because you think they both have a point. It could simply be because the feud's gone on so long that you can't remember what started it. And in this tale, shared with us by author T. Michael Argent, we join a shopkeeper caught in the middle of a feud between a doctor and an undertaker. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Jesse Cornett, Mick Wingert, Mary Murphy, Sarah Thomas, and Atticus Jackson. So a mortician and a physician walk into a bar. Anywhere else, it would be the beginning of a joke. But in this town, it means the same old sparks are about to fly. And who knows who's to blame? Because at the end of the day, every man digs his own grave. Half an hour after the sun rose, I unlocked the front doors to the store and turned the sign to read open. In the silence, the flipping pages of my paperback copy of Peyton Place were deafening. It was cool now, but the signature July heat would settle in in a matter of hours. They predicted triple digits for the next few weeks. I looked out the window at Hannah's diner across the street. I could see my wife Lorelai bustling along the lunch counter with a fresh pot of coffee, topping off the early birds' steaming mugs. I smiled faintly. We both had dawn schedules. If I didn't have my own customers to deal with, I probably would have been over there myself. The bell chimed abruptly. Heavy shoes clacked on the tile as they walked towards the counter. Without looking up, I tried to guess if it was Dr. Cook or Mr. Duggan. Duggan was probably just starting with Ms. McCabe for her funeral, so I assumed the former. Morning, Rex. I was right. I looked up at him in his white coat and eyeglasses, the black medical bag clutched in his hand. He'd been the town doctor for as long as I could remember. Morning, Dr. Cook. I instinctively reached towards the display case of cigarettes. All malls? The usual? Cook shook his head. None for me today. I finally decided I'm gonna quit. I've been breathing smoke in the patients' faces for who knows how long. I figure if I'm ever gonna stop, it should be now. I will take a bottle of Coke, though. 
I grabbed one from the cooler by the register and rang him up. That's very good thinking, Dr. Cook. Did Miss McCabe last night finally push you over? He nodded. Rest her soul, poor woman. I thought those things were supposed to be clean. It's all over the papers now. How tobacco and menthol and all that jazz rots your insides. Now I bet when Duggan finally cuts her open, her lungs will look like overcooked pot roast. <sighs> Cook stiffened. Say, speaking of, that bastard hasn't been here yet today, has he? I took the dollar he handed me. Nope, you're the first one here. He sighed as I gave him his change. Well, when you see him, tell him it won't do no good telling everyone I killed her or something. That old joke wasn't funny the first hundred times he told it. As if on cue, the bell rang. It don't matter. It's still funny to me. Duggan, the town's undertaker, stood in the doorway. He was dressed in his usual natty black suit dotted with formaldehyde stains. The gold chain he always wore around his neck glinted in the sunlight. Duggan glided across the room towards us, skin sallow and pale. Thanks for Mrs. McCabe last night, Doc. I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to pay the mortgage this month. Cook grimaced. Both of them knew how much he hated being called Doc. Cook snatched his Coke bottle off the counter and began walking towards the door. See you later, Rex. <sighs> Duggan stopped and put a thin hand on his shoulder. No, listen, Doc, I mean it. What's that, three in the past month? If you keep it up, I'll be able to buy so much embalming fluid and coffins, I could bury this whole town come judgment day. Cook pushed him brutally to the side, almost knocking him into the lotto display. As he opened the door, he turned. And if you keep it up, no one that comes through your door will die a virgin. Alive or not. Good day. Duggan's face twisted into a mask of anger. The doctor was far down the street before he could retort. I already had his Marlboros on the counter waiting. He threw a couple of bucks at me and took one out, fishing his lighter from his pocket. The awkward silence was getting to me, so I blurted out. Dr. Cook bought a Coke today instead of his Pall Malls. Said he's trying to quit for the health of his patients. Duggan took a long drag and held his cigarette out, blowing smoke from between his lips. Rex, I ain't gotta worry about nothing like that. My patients are already gone. They don't give no lip if I smoke in front of them. Tar and black lung and all that nonsense. Bunch of crap, if you ask me. Doc's just trying to look good. As I put coins in the register, he continued. I don't get him. He thinks that just because he went to medical school, everyone should feed him with a silver spoon. Acts all high and mighty. It's real tiring, it does. Someone should teach him a lesson. I shrugged. I don't know, Mr. Duggan. Never bothered me all that much. 
He took another drag. If there's one person's grave I'd dance on if they died, it'd be him. He's been delivering his failures to me for 20-odd years now. It's about time he came through my door in a box. He walked towards the exit, but stopped and turned. He makes me question my practice, he does. You can draft wills and hope everything's taken care of after you're gone, but it don't matter. The only person that can make sure it's just the way you want it is you. You sure ain't gonna be there to stop it if something goes wrong. If idiots like him are all that's left after I've croaked, is it worth it? Every man digs his own grave. You gotta hope the living will see you through. I said nothing. I never knew how to respond when he went off on tangents like that. He stepped through the door with a smile. You have a nice day now, Rex. That night I told Lorelei about the encounter in the store. She dropped dumplings into the simmering broth with two spoons. I just don't understand why those two hate each other so much. I sat in the chair by the kitchen door, crossing my arms. Every morning at open, day in and day out, even since when Papa still had the store, Dr. Cook comes in for his Pall Malls and Mr. Duggan comes in for his Marlboros. They snipe at each other for a minute or two and then go about their day. It has to get old after a while. I know it does for me. Our dog, a pit bull mix named Tallulah, stretched on the rug by my feet. She sat up and turned to look at me for a pet. I smiled and scratched her behind the ears. I looked down at her swollen belly. She was expecting pups in the next few weeks. Lorelai stirred the dumplings. They were in Mama's grave during school. Dr. Cook got a big scholarship and went off to the city, and Mr. Dugan just waited for his daddy to die so he could take over the practice. It's not unlike you, Rex. I shot her a fake, outraged look. She smiled. Sorry. Mama said they hated each other even back then. Dr. Cook always got the grades while Mr. Dugan sat in the back, staring daggers at his head. He knew Dr. Cook never have to work to be successful. It just always come easy to him. Well, that's no reason to hate a man. Just because he's a better student than you? I got up and moved to the table. Lorelai labeled the broth and dumplings into bowls. Since when is life fair? We sat down to eat, Tallulah staring longingly from the rug. The next two weeks passed as normal. Every day it was like clockwork. Dr. Cook came in to buy a Coke. Mr. Duggan came in while he was leaving with just enough time to get in an insult. On a few off days, Cook came in earlier or Duggan came later, meaning they didn't meet. Wednesday morning started off like any normal day. I opened the store at 6.30 and sat down with my book. It was Valley of the Dolls this time, as I had finished Peyton Place a few days earlier. I heard that familiar chime and looked up to Dr. Cook, walking towards the counter. A 
slight smile on the corner of his lips. Morning, doctor. You... But before I could finish, he pulled out a handful of bills and threw them on the counter. Morning, Rex. Give me all your Marlboros, if you please. I stared at him, my finger slipping from my page in the book. Uh, Dr. Cook, I thought you said you were laying off the cigarettes. Besides, that ain't your normal brand. Even if it was, what about you kicking the habit? He looked impatient and just tapped his fingers on the counter. Just, just hand them all over. This should teach that rotten crab apple to make jokes about my business. I reached for a single pack. I said all of them, Rex. Every last one. I started to protest, but shut my mouth. Selling all the Marlboros at 33 cents a pack wasn't bad. Who was I to pass up a profit? I pulled all the cigarette packs with the familiar red triangle off the shelf and laid them on the counter. That'll be, uh, six sixty. I carefully counted out the rough ball that Dr. Cook had given me. The whole time his eyes flitted from me to the door, sweat dripping down. I knew who he was waiting for. I finished and told him he had 50 cents extra. That's fine, Rex. Keep the change and put them all in my pack. I nodded and slid the small pile off the counter and into the bag. Just as I reached across the counter to give it to him, the bell chimed again. I winced. And just what are you up to today, Doc? Dr. Cook turned to look at him. <sighs> oh, don't mind me, Duggan. <laughs> I'm just saving your life. Duggan looked confused for a moment, then looked at the bag in the doctor's hand. His eyes shifted from the contents to the wall behind the register, clearly seeing the empty space where his normal brand usually sat. It's for your own good, you know. Those little cancer sticks will sneak up on you. You'll be taking off your condom after finishing with Alice Spalding and fall right over dead before you know it. Think of it as a favor. Cook grinned. Duggan's hands curled into fists. You son of a bitch. Listen here. I can do what I want. Just because you got your fancy medical degree doesn't mean you're the be-all, end-all of what's good for me and what ain't. Cook clutched the bag tighter to his chest. It's a free country, ain't it? And if I want to buy this here store's complete stock of a certain brand of cigarette, who's gonna stop me? A vein throbbed in Duggan's forehead. He opened his mouth to say something, but Cook cut him off. Thought so. Now, if you'll excuse me, I got Mr. Newman to attend to. He has a nasty fever, you know. <clears throat> he pushed past Duggan, shoving him with his shoulder before disappearing down the street. I tried to pick up my book again and look nonchalant, but Duggan's eyes narrowed in my direction. You knew what he was going to do and you didn't stop it? He nearly charged up to the counter in his fury. I smiled apologetically. I know it's a pain for you, Mr. Duggan, but when I make a sale, I can't pass it up. Duggan shook his head. At least he realized it wasn't my fault. 
That's the damnedest thing I ever saw. Spending over five dollars to swindle a man out of his earthly pleasures. Tuck is gonna get what's coming to him, and soon, you'll see. He settled on some parliaments instead, not even waiting before he got out of the store to light one up. After the first puff, his face soured like he just put a worm in his mouth. Just insane. Tastes like campfire ash. He flicked it in the bin outside and was gone. Duggan was missing from the store for the remainder of the week. Cook still came in and bought his Coke, grinning with triumph. I closed the store on Sundays to spend the last day of the weekend relaxing with Lorelei. However, I got a call from Duggan late Saturday night asking me to deliver a case of beer to his house. Apparently, he was going on a trip that last a few days and wanted to have a cold one the second he got back. Since he was a regular customer, I agreed. The extra five bucks he threw me as a delivery charge it didn't hurt either. Since it was such a beautiful Sunday morning, I decided to walk instead of drive. I kissed Lorelei goodbye and grabbed a case of Pabst, heading out for the two-mile trek to Duggan's. The sun shone through the branches of the trees, casting shadows on the road. About ten minutes in, I found myself passing Cook's house. He was standing in the driveway, fiddling with the van he used to visit patients way out in the sticks. Morning, Dr. Cook. His head whipped in my direction. Rex, what are you doing out so early on a Sunday? I held up the paps. Oh, Mr. Duggan's paying me extra to deliver this to him on my off day. He rubbed the back of his neck. Well, when you see him, tell him this ain't over. I woke up this morning to find this waiting for me. He pointed to the left rear tire of the van, which was flat. A portion of the rubber was shredded, as if it had been slashed with a knife. I'll admit, buying all those cigarettes wasn't the nicest move, but I didn't damage his property or nothing like that. Cook threw the tire iron he'd been holding down to the ground. Well, I'll tell him so when I do. Cook frowned. You better. He ain't gonna be happy. I said my goodbyes and left, feeling his eyes on me as I walked away. Another 15 minutes later, I arrived at Duggan's place. It served as both his home and place of work. It was a monstrous, gothic thing, with a tower on the right side and a gabled roof. I walked up to the front door and knocked loudly. No one answered. Mr. Duggan? I turned to see Duggan stepping out of the trees on the other side of the road. His hands were covered in dirt and his shirt sleeves were rolled up. That gaudy gold chain around his neck glinted as much as ever. Bring it right over here, if you please. I nodded and crossed. Just as I went to hand him the paps, he shook his head. Wait, you gotta see this. Now, truth be told... I just wanted to go home so Lorelai and I could sit on the porch, but he was paying me good money for this excursion, so I humored him. Uh, sure. Show me the way. We walked down a short path through the trees that led out into a clearing. Sorry if I'm keeping you from the missus, but I don't show this patch of land to just anybody. 
I had no idea what he was talking about, but once I saw what lay in front of me, I had my answer. A ramshackle graveyard spread lazily over half a small clearing. Misshapen tombstones that looked hand-carved marked depressions in the grass where it had never quite grown back. There were at least twelve in total, but a few were bleached white by the sun or knocked over in pieces, so it was hard to tell. Uh, is this a place where you bury the folks who can't afford a place at the county churchyard? <laughs> no, it ain't that. It's the family plot. The Duggins own the undertaking business in this town for nigh on a hundred years now. This land's been with us almost that long. Whenever one of us kicks the bucket, we're buried out here with all the rest. I looked over and saw a shovel leaning against a nearby tree. A few feet away was a freshly filled in hole. He looked over and laughed. <laughs> oh, don't worry, it's just spot is all. That dog was getting old, you know. We got him just when Gordon started first grade. No, oh, Dorothy didn't want him in the house, too rowdy. He'd break all the fine china, and he did. God bless her soul. Buried right over there. He pointed to her grave 20 feet away. Duggan's wife had been dead for six years now, and his son Gordon was off in college. Yeah, this is a place I'll rest my bones when my time comes. I just hope that Gordon has enough mind for tradition to bury me out here. He finds it mighty ghastly, living across the way from where all his ancestors lie. Ah, but what does he know? young people these days. I'd sooner be cremated and have my ashes stirred into the cake batter at the church ladies' Sunday luncheon than be put in a hole in any other place. The sun disappeared behind some clouds, causing the light in the clearing to fade. I gotta finish up now, Rex. Thanks for bringing this beer all this way. It'll be mighty nice to drink one after getting back from my sisters up in Riverside. I'm leaving soon as this hole is dug. Just leave it on the porch. Money should be there, too. I nodded and turned to leave when I stopped. Did, uh... Did you pop that tire in Dr. Cook's van? I passed him on the way over here. He was madder than all hell. Duggan smiled evilly. That I did teach him a lesson for buying all my cigarettes. God forbid he have to blow some of his precious salary on a purchase such as that. I dropped a beer on the porch and started for home again. I was just passing Cook's house when he burst through the front door, running towards me at full speed. Rex, thank God you're back. Uh, Mr. Newman's fever it got worse during the night. He stopped breathing a few minutes ago. That fucking bastard popped the tire on my van, and I can't get there in time by walking. Can you give me a ride? His life is at stake. I nodded, and we set off, practically running down the street. Five minutes later, we rounded the corner and started towards the driveway. I saw that Lorelei was pulling out, backing up down the path. She stuck her head out the window and slammed on the brakes when she saw us. Goodness, Rex, what's a rush? I was just going to the post office. 
Why is Dr. Cook with you? I explained the situation to her while trying to catch my breath. Her face went white. Oh my, that is serious. Get in, Dr. Cook. I'll take you there myself right away. Thank you kindly, ma'am. He jumped in the passenger seat and they sped off, sending a cloud of dust in their way. I waited for the next hour or so on the porch, scratching Tallulah's ear and watching the road. I must have dozed off because I woke up to the sound of tires on the gravel. I jumped up and ran to the car. Dr. Cook and Lorelai climbed out. Both of their faces were grave. Cook's eyes were red. He threw his bag down on the ground hard. He didn't make it. I got there too late. Mr. Newman hadn't breathed in 15 minutes by the time we got there. I tried using the defibrillator, but it didn't work. He sat there on the hood of the car, hanging his head in his hands. This is all his fault. Duggan. 25 years now, and I've never lost a patient that didn't have to be. If that cocksuckers hadn't popped the tire on my van, I could have been there ten minutes sooner. He'd be talking to his wife right now. He should be. Though he managed to hold back the tears, his face got redder. I couldn't think of much to say. I put my arm around Lorelai. My God, that's awful. I wonder what Mr. Duggan will say when he gets back from his trip in a few days. Cook froze for a moment. I thought he was heaving for a sob, but instead he wiped his eyes and stood up. He was looking at something in the distance, as if deep in thought. Just as suddenly as it had come, he snapped out of it. Well, I guess I ought to be going home now. Thanks for your help today, you two. If you ever need anything at all. Just give a holler. As he walked away, I could have sworn I saw a smile at the corner of his lips. He sure got over that mighty quick. We walked back towards the house. I wasn't sure what day Duggan would be back, so when I opened the store that week, I only expected to see Cook early in the morning. But I didn't see him either. I waited there with the Coke on the counter for four days straight, but there was no sign. I assumed he was still pretty broken up about Mr. Newman's death and was taking a few much-needed days off. I closed the store at 7.30 every night. If I didn't have a customer between 6.45 and 7.15, sometimes I shuttered early. Thursday evening was shaping up to be just that. I put my book back on the shelf under the counter and went around to start turning the lights off. I just reached down to pick up a soda that had fallen behind the fridge when the door burst open, banging hard against the wall beside it. I dropped the soda, sending the bottle crashing to the floor. Now what's the meaning? I turned around to scold whoever had just burst in, but stopped. Duggan stood in the doorway. His suit was scrumpled like a tissue, marred by dark stains. His face was as red as a ripe tomato. His hair stuck up this way and that like he'd just gotten out of bed. When he spoke, his voice was hoarse. 
Rex, you need to give me every last drop of cleaning supplies you have in this here store. I looked at him for a moment, dumbfounded. Mr. Duggan, I'm not sure if I'm at liberty to do that. The other folks in this town might... He came running up and stood within a foot of me. You don't understand. I need it all, and I need it now. Do you know what that jackass doctor did to me? I shook my head. I can't imagine. Now, I could sell you maybe half of it, but... He continued like I hadn't spoken. After I left town Sunday evening, he slithered like a water moxin over to my property and chopped down the power line with an axe. Ain't nobody there to report the power's gone out. You know how I make sure all my customers get their grandmas and grandfathers and great aunts and the rest of them back looking as nice as their wedding day? I gulped. I didn't like where this conversation was going. I put them in freezers. Ones that must be kept with a chill to preserve them. Now tell me, if your power's gone out and your freezer don't work, what happens to all your ice cream and bags of bird's eye vegetable medley after all that cold is taken away and it's a hundred degrees for the last three days straight? I felt the color drain from my face. I opened my front door half an hour past and it was like I walked into the devil's ball sack. I went down to the basement you wouldn't believe what I saw. Flies everywhere like the room was made of honey. Black liquid dripping out of the doors of the freezer. I near fainted it smelled so bad. I didn't need to be told anything more. I went over to the cleaning section and started handing him bottles of Clorox and Pine Sol and everything. Oh, he done it. He's really done it. I passed the dog on my way over here. You wouldn't believe the smile he gave me. Just like he heard the whole damn town come down with scarlet fever. I popped that damn tire on his van. Yes, but how was I supposed to know what happened to Mr. Newman? He's gone and ruined my entire livelihood. I'll never hear the end of this. Folks will start crossing the county line to get other business. They'll whisper. They'll point. I'll have to deliver Mrs. Jameson to her family in a fucking paint can now. I won't have it. I won't take it for one second longer. As I rang him up, I saw that awful gleam enter his eye again. It glowed almost as brightly as that gold chain around his neck. He hoisted the bag up and turned to leave. As he slipped out the door, he grinned again. Doc will never know what hit him. Maybe I'll just have a new body for the graveyard soon. With that, I was left alone in the store. I spent the rest of that night with a pit in my stomach lying in bed and staring at the ceiling. This was getting out of control. Had Duggan threatened Cook with murder? I'd hated many a person in my lifetime, but I'd never hated him so much that I wanted him dead. Lorelai must have sensed that I was troubled because she leaned over and put an arm around me. I sighed and fell asleep soon after. I was terrified to open the store Friday morning. I didn't want Duggan to walk through the front doors, blood dripping off his hands and ask me for some garbage bags. Or cook, for that matter. But I didn't have to worry. Neither of them showed up all day. 
Late that afternoon, I was almost falling asleep. The radio DJ announced 1968's newest hit, Never My Love, and it droned lazily from the corner. The bell chiming on the door woke me up. It was Josie Larkin, daughter of a farmer that lived outside of town. Hello, Mr. Clark. She walked over to the refrigerated section and grabbed a bottle of Fanta. Good afternoon, Josie. What are you up to this fine day? Did your father give you the day off? She popped the cap off with an opener from her pocket. Yep. Daddy's cutting wheat all day and said he didn't need any help. So I went walking in town and ran into Mr. Duggan. He came up and asked if I'd make a special delivery for him. Said he'd give me $10 for doing it. I nearly froze as she handed me her money. Did he now? What, uh, what kind of delivery? She grabbed the change and stuffed it in her pocket. Sorry, Mr. Clark, I can't tell you that. He had me sworn to secrecy. I can't tell nobody. I just popped in here to get a drink before I drive over. It was hard work loading it all into the truck. Made me real thirsty. She started towards the door. What? What did you load into the truck? But she just waved. You have a nice day now. Josie bounded down the steps and jumped into her father's pickup. The bed was covered loosely in tarp and rope. As she started the engine and drove away, the tarp flew up a moment. And I saw it. The back was full of gas cans. I drove home from the store at 7.30 in a daze. Lorelai greeted me at the door. My God, what's wrong with you? You look like you just saw a ghost. I mumbled something and slumped down in a chair at the table. She glared at me, closing the door of the fridge. Rex Clark, you ain't gonna get a single bite to eat until you tell me what's got you all riled up. I told her about the gas cans. She shook her head. You don't really think Mr. Dugan is thinking about torching Dr. Cook's house, do you? That seems like a bit much of a reaction. I hadn't told her about the power cut, but I wanted to believe her. I wanted to tell myself that Duggan had a perfectly harmless explanation and it would all be over. So I nodded. You're probably right. Maybe he's just planning on having a bonfire or something. I buried my head deeper in the sand as the night wore on. Tallulah disappeared for a while, but came back later barking happily. Lorelai looked down at her. I thought for sure those pups were coming today. Looks like she might have gone off to try and find a good place for later. After supper, we went to the bedroom. I hadn't thought about the gas cans for hours. Soon after we were done, I slipped off into a dreamless sleep. I woke up at 4.30 in the morning to the acrid smell of smoke. I coughed and sat up in bed. Lorelai called my name from the living room. I rushed down the hall to find the front door wide open with her standing on the lawn. I stepped out and looked up. Black smoke was rising from a mile away, floating over the treetops in black clouds. 
I knew where it was coming from. There was the distant sound of fire trucks blaring their horns. I walked down the steps and wrapped my arms around Lorelei. She gulped. Well, I guess that wasn't too much of a step up, was it? I decided to close the store that day. I drove there myself a half an hour later to flip the sign and write a note of explanation. On my way back, I almost stopped at the sheriff's to tell him what I saw, but I knew there wouldn't be any proof. Duggan would have taken every precaution so that he wouldn't be caught. Saturday passed in a relative blur. Lorelei and I spent the afternoon and evening chopping wood and putting it in the shed for the winter. Though the day started out sunny, clouds rapidly overtook it, growing darker with each passing hour. When the wind started to pick up and there was that electric feeling in the air, I knew we were in for a storm. We finished around 8 o'clock, just as the rain was really starting to pick up. Lorelai went into the house to change her clothes while I put the tools away. Just as I went to walk up the porch steps, I saw Cook passing slowly by on the road in his van. One new tire stood out in contrast to the three old dusty ones. A pit formed in my stomach. He turned his head and saw me, slamming on the brakes. I ran over. Dr. Cook, I think I know where you're going. I just want to say that before you... But I stopped. His eyes were unfocused, staring off into space. I saw a half-empty bottle of Jim Beam lying on the passenger seat next to his medical bag, which was spilled over. His hair was scorched in some places. I could see burns on his arms. His laugh was low and solemn, almost as slurred as his words. Rex, I should have known that bastard would do something like this. That... Uh, their house was in my family most as long as his family been putting people in the ground. My great-granddaddy built it with his own two hands. And we've added on to it for years. And me and my sister, we were born in that guest room. My mother died in the upstairs bedroom. Oh, them memories. And you know what? It all gone. Gone and reduced to cinders. All because he can have his marbles. <laughs> My house, it looked like his lungs now. All black and ashy. But I got something for him. Something real nice. I shook my head. Dr. Cook, wait. You can't. But before I could stop him, he slammed on the gas. The car thundered down the road, raising a dust cloud in its wake. I stumbled back to the house. Night was falling rapidly, almost as fast as the rain was picking up outside. I went through the door and sprawled onto the couch, hanging my head in my hands. I had no idea what to do. As the rain beat harder and harder on the roof, I sat there, lost in thought. 
My stupor was interrupted by the back door opening and Lorelai stepping through. Panicked look on her face. Oh, Rex, I can't find Tallulah anywhere. Her yells broke me from my days. What was I doing? I needed to stop this. Lori, I, I know that sounds bad, but I got something to tell you. Dr. Cook... Look at it outside. It's raining harder than hell and she's got her pups. If we don't find her soon, they could be drowned. What if she's holed up under a tree somewhere? Have you seen her since this afternoon? I tried to bring up the van again, but she ran towards the back door. I'll go look in the yard. I almost protested, but stopped. I looked out the window at the spot where Cook's van had resided 20 minutes before. An idea formed in my mind. Yeah, you do that. I'll jump in the car and I'll go out looking for her. I grabbed my keys off the peg by the door and rushed into the storm. I felt bad about lying to Lorelei where I was going. I really did care about Tallulah and her pups, but I had to stop Cook before he did something terrible. I raced down the street as quick as I could. The wipers were on their highest setting and I still had trouble seeing out the windshield. Puddles had already started forming on the road, sending up large sprays of water whenever I went through them. I was going so fast I nearly sped right by Duggins, but I slammed on the brakes just in time, almost running into Cook's van parked in the driveway. The storm clouds loomed over the gothic house, making it look like a haunted mansion. I climbed out of my car and started towards the house. It was full dark by then, and I was soaked to the bone by the driving rain. As I passed the van, I saw the driver's door was wide open. I mounted the steps and pounded on the front door. Dr. Cook? Mr. Duggan, it's me, Rex Clark from the store. Don't... The door swung in lazily. It was already open. No one answered my calls as it stopped hitting the wall beside. I could see through the short, dusty front hallway and into the lighted kitchen beyond. A large pool of blood covered the tiles, seeping through the arch and staining the wood floor. I moaned in horror and turned around, faltering on the porch steps. I was too late. If I hadn't wasted those ten minutes doing nothing, all this could have been prevented. Now there was a dead man. It was all mine. My train of thought came to a stop when something caught in my headlights. The car was positioned at an angle, sending two bright jets into the woods across the road. The first thing I saw was Cook's medical bag lying in the ditch. The second was the figure in the trees. I recognized that natty black suit right away. I stumbled forward, collapsing on the hood of the car. Duggan was rapidly disappearing down the path towards the graveyard. Something was clutched in his right hand. I followed it down to the ground where a dark shape was being dragged through the mud. The beams lit it up as it fell, making it shine like liquid gold. I managed to let out a hoarse cry, barely audible over the wind. Duggan froze in his tracks. I realized too late that I didn't want to see, but I didn't look away. The first thing I saw when he turned around was the blood coming out of his mouth. It was pinkish and diluted from the rain. I could tell what it was all the same. His hair was plastered to his head, greasy tangles taut against his face. The suit was stuck to him as well, emphasizing his skeletal frame. The large thing he dragged down the path was covered in muck and grime. 
His bloodshot eyes settled on me for a moment. They seemed to glow in the lights. A few seconds passed before his mouth split open in a grin. It was the most terrible thing I'd ever seen. Like putting your head underwater and seeing a shark baring its teeth at you from the depths. As I watched, he put one finger to his bloody lips, like this was an inside joke that only him and I knew about. He let it drop and turned around, dragging the body towards the graveyard again. The next few minutes are lost to me. I vaguely recall getting in the car and driving in the direction home. I know I hit a few potholes and bumped a thing or two along the way because the car was covered in dents in the morning. At some point, I stumbled through the front door to find Lorelei sitting by the stove, petting Tallulah's head. Eight puppies were lined up along her stomach. She was behind the stove the whole time. Look at them, Rex. Couldn't you just eat them? She stopped when she saw my face. Holy hell, what happened? But I ignored her and I stumbled into the kitchen to call the police. Sheriff Winscott came to get me the next morning. Lorelai kissed me as she put Tallulah's dish out. I climbed into the passenger seat and we were off down the road. Winscott shook his head. I knew something like this was bound to happen. Those two have been sniping at each other for many long years now. You can't hate someone for that long without wanting to kill him at some point. I said nothing. Five minutes later, we pulled into the driveway. Cook's van was still parked. The cab flooded with water from the previous night's storm. Winscott stepped out, breathing in some early morning air. I want you to go over exactly what you saw last night. I shivered, but nodded. Okay, well, I parked over there and, and started going towards the house. And... But I stopped when I saw the two officers carrying a sheeted body out the front door. The arms flopped to the side as they took it towards the ambulance. The sleeves of its jacket weren't black, but white. What was that you were saying? Winscott jotted something down in his notebook, but I kept watching as they loaded the body into the back. One of the officers stumbled, causing the sheet to slip down from the face. Dr. Cook's lifeless eyes stared back at me. There are two blood pools in the house. Both bastards must have shot or stabbed each other or something. Doc was dead in there, body in the kitchen. But we can't find Duggins. Winscott was droning, but I took off running towards the path that led into the woods. Hey, where are you going? I ignored him. I swatted branches out of my way as I looked down at the ground. No footprints in the mud. Just drag marks. I burst into the clearing. The sun graced the treetops, lighting the whole space with early morning rays. 
something gleamed off to my left. Ten feet away, right next to Dorothy Duggan's grave, was a freshly filled in hole, the shovel still stuck out of the wet dirt. I walked to it, staring down at the glinting object at the head of the resting place. It was Duggan's gold chain. In our final tale, we find ourselves on the front lines of the Great War. The year is 1918. In present day, we know that the war ends that year. If only we could let them know, because back then they had no idea. It must have felt eternal. Nobody could predict the future, after all. But in this tale, shared with us by author D. Williams, we meet a field nurse who seems to be capable of exactly that. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson, Jake Benson, and Penny Scott Andrews. So let's jump back to the past and look to the future. But what good is seeing the future if you're unable to change it? Ask yourself, can I see these things for a reason? Or are they simply what I cannot know? It is 1918. Four miles from here, at the front, a fragment of German shell strikes a rock. It ricochets with such force that it cuts entirely through one man's stomach and another man's arm. By then it has lost enough momentum that when it strikes the third man in the jaw, it lodges there. The first man is dead. The other two will be arriving soon. But when I tell Seamus this, he doesn't believe me. He cannot know that. He's right. I cannot know it. And yet I do. When two men are evacuated back to our operating hospital some hours later, one missing an arm and the other with a shard of metal stuck fast in the bone below his left ear, Seamus does not look at me in wonderment. Indeed, it seems he does not even remember what I told him. Edith. He points to the man with shrapnel in his jaw. This one. Putting the anaesthetic mask over his face is difficult. The metal is in the way. The other soldier mutters to himself across the room, gesturing with what remains of his arm. He is stable but shell-shocked. I hear the words, guts, and spill, and cannot bear to listen more closely. The man below me on the table isn't able to speak, but he is crying. His sobs are guttural and wet. The bubbles of spittle that escape from between his lips are tinged pink. Don't be afraid, I tell him. My voice is soft as I watch the steady drop, drop, drop of the chloroform onto the mask. I won't let it hurt. His eyes are wet with tears. I see in them everything we all want to. To be warm. To be safe. To be home. I count backwards from ten, and he blinks in time with me. Ten. Nine. Eight. And his eyelids begin to slow. Seven. 
Six. Five. And they are out of sync with my count. Four. Three. Two. One. And they stay closed. I switch the chloroform mask for the ether, and Seamus begins to work on him. At the convalescent tent, another man has just been told that he will be sent back to the front tomorrow. It is another thing I cannot know, but I do. Ida is the nurse on the rounds in convalescence, and that is how I know, because Ida has told me. Or rather, she will tell me tonight through her tears. Take his pistol away. I know I say the words aloud, but Seamus doesn't seem to hear me. It doesn't matter. The words are not meant for him. I don't know for whom they are meant. The man tells Ida he is going for a walk. He thanks her for taking such good care of him. She watches him as he goes. Take his pistol away! Take his pistol away! I am shouting now, but no one reacts. No one responds. There is no hope for that, I realise. I turn to Seamus instead. You must hold steady. No matter what, hold steady. I know he must hear me, for he is nodding his head, but he looks as though he doesn't understand the words I am saying. His eyes are fixed on his work. I hear the scuff of boots just outside the canvas walls of our hospital. The ether puddles on the cloth of the mask. I want to run to the man outside to stop him, but I cannot bring myself to move. Hold steady, Seamus. Please hold steady. But it's no use. The report is loud and close and Seamus starts, and suddenly there is a gout of blood across my chest and I am only just able to turn my head quick enough to keep it from getting in my eyes. <sighs> God damn it. Seamus tries to clamp on the severed artery, but the shell fragment has completely bisected it. It is already too late, and I know this, even though I shouldn't, and the blood slows and the ether drips until the last, and at least, at least I was able to do that. At least it did not hurt. And outside, Ida is screaming because she has never seen a man shoot himself, and she did not know. How could she have known that he was going to do it? No one could have known. Except I did. I knew, and I could do nothing to stop it. Later, when chaos has abated for a moment, I bring Seamus the strongest cup of tea I can make. He has been crying, but he tries not to let me see. There is blood under his nails, and mine as well. We met here at this field hospital what feels like many years ago already. When he is sure no one is looking, Seamus kisses my hand. Doctors should not fraternise with their nurses, and mother and father would hardly approve. But I am long past caring. I let my fingers stay twined with his. Seamus and I do not know each other. Not really. We only know what war has made of us. But someday, when this ends, we want to change that. He wants to take me to Blarney. They takes us out to Blarney, they lays us on the grass. They puts us in the family way and leaves us on our ass so right away. So right away. So right away, Salonica, right away, my soldier boy. I don't know that song. He wants to take me to Blarney Castle to kiss the stone. So I don't know what to do for you, like, since you already speak so prettily. But we'll never see Blarney, not together. He'll be gone before the war is over. I don't know that. I can't know that. But he will be. He will go, starving for air, his fingertips blue, his face. I don't want to think about that. I squeeze his hand tighter in my own, and he is warm and alive. 
I do not know that he will die here. I refuse to know it. You haven't heard that song yet? I realize I have been humming the tune about Salonika. He's right. The women are singing it now in Cork, but I can't know that. I won't know that until after the war is over when I go to find his mother. To tell her how brave her son was. To tell her where he is buried. Stop it, Edith. Seamus looks at me in the face, and his eyes are dark. Have they always been so? Something much worse is coming. It comes on a stretcher from the front. They carry him into our hospital, and he is death. I see his face, and it is only a skull, grinning with the promise of taking from me everything that I love. His bones rattle beneath the cloth of his uniform, and they tell me that the sound is the rails of a cough. They say he's been gassed, but they are wrong. He's not been gassed. He's sick. Don't bring him in here. Take him over there. Over there. I gesture frantically to the hospital tent designated for the sick, but they do not see me point. They do not hear my words. It will not matter anyway. A barrier only of cloth and a few hundred metres cannot keep death from us. He will reach the sick tent in due time, and the convalescence ward, and the quarters for the doctors and nurses. He will reach them all in time. But first he will come for the operation hospital. First he will come for us. His flesh reforms before my eyes, and he is suddenly only a boy. He heaves for breath, eyes burning with fever. A dusky hue has already spread over his cheeks. He reaches for my hand with his grey fingertips. He coughs, a jet of frothy, milky blood bubbling over his lips and out of his nose. I take his hand. I cannot do otherwise. Even death is afraid of what he brings to us. His right lung is filling with fluid. Lung damage is an effect of chlorine gas, but I know this is not from gas. But there is nothing I can say or do that will change what is about to happen. Seamus wants to drain the plural space to give the boy room to breathe. My hands shake as I administer the chloroform. For this I can know, and this I do know. Anesthetic will not take if you cannot breathe it in. The boy flickers, but refuses to fade fully under. His eyelids flutter, but do not close. But Seamus will not wait any longer. He goes in. The skin parts easily, and the muscle underneath. I'm crying, but again I cannot move. Seamus, please don't. Please, please don't. He won't go under. He can't. The rib comes out slick with blood, and the lung underneath is heavy and dark. Under my shaking hands beneath the mask, the boy groans in delirium and pain. Please, Seamus, I'm begging you. He can still move. He doesn't hear me. He never has. He never will. I cannot know that the boy will buck when the needle goes in, but I do. And the needle goes in, and he does. He bucks and he coughs and the great pressure against his lung is released out into the air through the needle. The pus is thin and sanguineous, and as it comes down on Seamus like rain, I know death has taken his hand as well. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sobbing. And it seems now that finally Seamus can hear me. He wipes his face with his sleeve, smearing the bloody fluid away from his eyes. I think he knows now that this is not gas. I think he has known all along. But he couldn't just let the boy die. Hold steady, Edith. We haven't lost him yet. And he's right. Despite all of it... The boy survives the surgery, and then he survives a single day more. 
Seamus survives six. He clutches my hand, and there is blood under his nails. He is sick, but he is only one of many. No one tries to drain their lungs. No one knows what to do. We give them whiskey and water and wrap them in blankets and wait for them to die. Seamus is dying now. He is drowning. His eyes bulge red. His nose bleeds continuously. The pillow beneath his head is matted with clots. The skin across his chest and throat crackles with trapped pockets of air leaking from his heavy, bloody lungs. His face is swollen and black. He coughs and seizes, and his nails dig into my skin again, but I will not pull away. He cannot speak, but he is begging me to help him. There is nothing I can do. When it is finally over, his hand is still in mine, and he is warm, but not alive. Edith? And his hand is still in mine, but then it is not his hand. It is a woman's hand. She is alive, and she is a few years younger than I am, and looks like my sister. Marianne? But she is not my sister Marianne, because Marianne died before the war even began. And she is not a few years younger than I am. She is many. The hand she holds in her own is small and wrinkled and old. My hand. No, Grandma Edith. It's me, Susanna. The Scotsman on the radio sings about a far-off place, and I think at first that it must be Salonica. But it is not. It is Italy. There is a photograph on the wall, and I am in it, but I am older. No, I am younger. I am in my wedding dress, and I am smiling, and the man next to me in his suit is not Seamus, because Seamus did not live long enough for us to go to Blarney. The man is... His name is... Robert. He is gentle and kind, and even when I thought I could never love again, I did learn to love him. Robert is gone too now, I remember. But he was old, and we had lived a good life. And it did not hurt. At least it did not hurt. Did you go somewhere frightening again, Grandma Edith? I am crying. I have been crying. I am shaking. I was afraid, but now it is easing. I remember Susanna too. I remember that I love her. I did, darling. I did. The voice cracks with age, but I know it is mine. Do I go there often? She nods, and she looks so sad that my heart breaks for hers, as hers does for mine. Don't worry. I'm back now. For a little while, at least. Don't be sad. I am old, and my mind is going and the only place it ever seems to go is back to that hell in 1918. I don't want to go there, but I do. And it is just as horrible as it was the first time, and every time that I have relived it since then. But just as often, Susanna holds my hands and she brings me back where I belong. I want her to know how much this means to me, how much I love her. But she cannot know. She cannot know unless I tell her. And so I do. It is 1918. Four miles from here at the front, a fragment of German shell strikes a rock. And I know this when I cannot know it. I know this just as I know that the Spanish influenza is coming 
and I know that it will claim Seamus just as it will claim millions of others. And I will try to change this when I know I cannot change it. And I know I am helpless, and I am afraid. But deep down in my heart I know this too, that I will not have to be afraid for long, because Susanna will take my hands and bring me back, and for a time I will be safe and I'll be warm. For a time, I will be home. I know this, and I will always know this, even when I cannot. the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.